Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, a weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 248. Royal Caribbean sails 25 of the world's most innovative cruise ships to the most popular destinations around the world. Often, we focus on cruising from North America, but so many of us often look to the other side of the Atlantic for new opportunities and adventures that await in Europe. Taking a European cruise is different from cruising in the Caribbean, so this week I want to share what tips and advice you need to know before taking a Royal Caribbean cruise in Europe. Here we go. With so many cruises offered throughout the year, it's easy to lose sight of just how many amazing destinations Royal Caribbean sails to, including some incredible itineraries all over Europe. Each summer, Royal Caribbean ships descend upon Europe to offer guests the perfect way to see so many historical, cultural, and whimsical destinations. If the opportunity to see these ports sounds enticing, then likely you might be wondering how what you ought to know before you go on that old world cruise. Certainly, I had the same thought. So this week, I want to shed some light on the subject. And when it comes to learning about how to cruise smarter, I always look to the excellent coverage of the cruise industry that the warm and friendly Colleen McDaniel provides. As a senior editor, executive editor at Cruise Critic, Colleen provides in-depth information about cruising today and shares excellent tips and advice as she explores the very best that cruising has to offer. And this week, she once again joins me to discuss what you need to know about taking a Royal Caribbean cruise to Europe. So, Colleen, I wanted to welcome you back to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's one I'm really passionate about. Good. I'm so glad to hear that because I don't know anything about it. I wanted to, <laughs> and I said, who knows about European cruising? Ah, Colleen. Actually, who knows blank about cruising? Like anything. Insert, you know, fill in the blank there. It's Colleen. So I wanted to, uh, to bring you on here and talk about this. Obviously, you have a lot of experience there. And, and I, you know, I talked about this before the show, Colleen, uh, before we started recording, but, you know, I think really a lot of folks who, uh, obviously first time cruisers are going to be of interest to this, but there's a lot of people, I think, like myself who have done, North American cruises so much over the years, you know, it's, it's, you kind of get used to it, but cruising in Europe, while there are a lot of similarities, don't get me wrong, there are some nuances and differences and things to basically be aware of. And that's why I want to talk to you today. So where do you think we should begin this discussion? Yeah, I think to begin with, you really need to talk about itineraries. And um, what you really need to know about European cruising is it tends to be a lot more port intensive than a Caribbean cruise is. So a Caribbean cruise, a seven-day Caribbean cruise, you might have three, four ports in seven days. Um, you're going to have more ports than that when you're cruising the Mediterranean and cruising in Europe because, you know, for many people, you've made that trip all the way over there. So cruise lines really are focused on getting you to the destinations you want to see. That's a great point about itineraries. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. That's something I'm already thinking about, which, you know, in, in North America, when we talk about cruising, we typically talk about seven-night cruises. That's probably the good baseline for Americans. And certainly, I think, you know, even the three- and four-nighters, right, can work their way into the conversation. When we talk about Europe, Colleen, what is the – what would you say is the baseline? What is that um, that that happy spot, that happy medium of, of cruising in Europe? Is it still seven nights? Is it longer? Is it shorter? Sure. Yeah, no, I, and, and interestingly, seven nights is still a very doable cruise that many cruise lines offer um, in Europe, uh, and, and often they sort of, you know, wrap it in a way so you get the most out of your time um, so you're not using up all your vacation days. Um, but that said, a lot of cruise lines offer a little bit longer uh, cruise itinerary. So you can spend 10, 12 days or so cruising the Mediterranean. Um, as it is in the Caribbean, um, there's a lot of sort of that alternating itinerary. So if you want to do a back-to-back, it's a great spot to do a back-to-back kind of cruise where, you know, you might see Western, uh, excuse me, Western Mediterranean one day, Eastern Mediterranean on that next cruise. Um, and so back-to-back is an absolutely great European option. Certainly. And of course, you're already spending all that money to get over there. So, you know, when in, when in Rome, right, <laughs> you got to, right. uh, you may as well take advantage of it. Absolutely. And the other thing is they, um, many cruise lines offer uh, extensions. So you can spend a little bit more time in those big cities, in the Rome, in the Barcelona, in Venice. Um, so you really can get that European flavor. Uh, one of the strategies that we talked about a couple episodes ago about 
uh, airports and flying to your port. And we talked about this in the context of the United States. Like if you're flying, if you're cruising out of Miami, you can uh, fly into a port like uh, an airport like uh, Port Everglades or Fort Lauderdale. I'm doing it backwards now. <laughs> Fort Lauderdale or even, I mean, Orlando and drive to the port and save a lot of money in that way. That strategy does hold up in Europe as well, right? In terms of flying to a different city within Europe and taking advantage of the great uh, mass transportation. Sure. A mass transportation helps a lot. It also helps that a lot of the countries that you would visit are in that European Union. Um, mm. So your passport, uh, you know, gets you through. You don't have to keep going through customs every time. Um, so that's great. Plus, of course, you know, the, the, the European Union uses the euro. So, again, that's nice from country to country. So you don't have to change uh, your currency. Sure. And you mentioned the passport, and I think that's important to mention, even though this may seem like a really basic thing. But if you're traveling to Europe for a European cruise, unlike the Caribbean, you do need a passport, right? Yeah, that's correct. You cannot get by with just a birth certificate and some form of state-issued ID. You absolutely need a passport. Good. And what would you, in, in a perfect world, like granted, we all have different things going on in our lives, but what would be your recommendation for, let's say you're doing a seven-night cruise as an example, uh, maybe Symphony of the Seas this summer, right? Sure. What would be your recommendation for how many days before the cruise or after the cruise do you recommend uh, getting there? Like in terms of like, do you like to pad, is it a good idea to pad your, your cruise essentially on, on either end or both ends? Yeah, I think it's essential to do that um, in part because jet lag becomes a factor, right? Mm, you know, in the United yeah. States, really you're talking about three hours at the most but if you're talking about Europe you know from the east coast to get to Europe most countries are going to be six hours ahead so right there that makes a difference if you're coming from the west coast of the United States you got a nine hour difference so jet lag is real (laughs) it gets me (laughs) still every time Um, and if you haven't done international travel before it's a great idea to build in that cushion. Additionally, same thing that, you know, we, we, same advice we give to cruisers in the Caribbean, and that is you, you don't want to have to, you know, scramble if your flight is canceled. Um, and with international flights, it's even trickier because there are connections that can be missed. Um, there are, you know, if you, if you book with a, a major cruise line, it's what, or excuse me, a major airline, and it's one thing, but there are some economy kind of, um, airlines out there as well things can go wrong so give yourself a couple of days really plus if you're going to a big city you're going to want to spend that time exploring i mean you don't want to go to rome and just sort of pass through to go to uh civitavecchia and sail away you want to spend some time in rome how do you pronounce that city again <laughs> civitavecchia Chivi- rome that's what i'm calling it. rome okay <laughs> it, good rome. Go ahead and call rome. it rome <laughs> <Rome>. <laughs> the um I still don't know how to pronounce that city's name. I, yeah. Anyway, let's move past that. Um, speaking of language, this is a real, this one I've, I've definitely read on the cruise critic message boards a lot, and I don't know how what your response is to it. Which is how if someone's coming over, obviously we may not, maybe we don't remember quite the high school French or Spanish that we took. What? How would you handicap the language barrier, especially on the cruise ship? I mean, I know we're talking here within the context of Royal Caribbean, but what would you if some is, should there be a concern about being able to communicate? Uh, let's start with on board the ship, and then, of course, on shore is a whole different issue altogether. But what do you tell people about the concerns about going on a European cruise and the ability to, you know, talk to either fellow guests and or the crew members? Right. Um, you definitely will get more of an international mix of passengers when you're cruising in the Mediterranean. Um, I just returned from Carnival Horizon, and it was a huge mix of passengers. Um, we sailed a round trip from Rome, and we had Italian, we had Spanish, we had American, we had British, you know. Um, That said, the language on board is English. And so speaking English and understanding English is essential for the crew. Um, They don't give announcements or anything like that in in other languages. It's all English. Um, And passengers tend to stick together. But certainly there is, you know, like anything, the more social are going to mix wherever they can. Uh, That is... um, not necessarily the same for some of the more international cruise lines. For example, a Costa or an MSC Cruises, which really does cater to those um, international European travelers. Uh, in many cases, announcements are going to be made in multiple languages. Uh, there's going to be a, a heavier mix of people who are Italian, who are Spanish, who are sailing those lines. Um, and, you know, as an American or a Westerner, 
you might not be accustomed to some of the um, social norms of other cultures. So, you know, that it is an opportunity to learn a bit, little bit more about other cultures. Absolutely. And then, of course, when, when you're in port, I mean, it's really no different than if you're in, uh, you know, Mexico or some other country where they don't speak English natively. I think there's a fair amount of, you know, variance in terms of your ability to, uh, you know, communicate with locals necessarily. Right. The smaller the town, the less likely it is that um, everybody's going to speak English. But, but big cruise ships tend to visit towns and, and I should say cities um, that really most everybody relies on the tourism industry and they speak English. Um, signs are often in English uh, and discussions happen in English. Sure. That makes sense. In terms of itineraries and picking one, you know, there's a lot of different crews out there. There's the Mediterranean, there's the Baltics, there's uh, the Canary Islands and essentially, you know, uh, Northern Europe, let's call that. Right. How would you, if someone is looking at Europe in general, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different choices there. How do you explain the differences or what are you, what are the most important things to know between each of those regions and how to basically pick one that's right for you? Sure. Um, so the Mediterranean is sort of that bread and butter um, intro to Europe cruise. You can do the Eastern or you can do the Western. Um, Western will take you more to the, the Spanish side. Eastern is going to take you more to Italy, Venice, that kind of thing. Um, it also will take you, that Eastern uh, will take you to, say, Croatia, Montenegro, and some really cool ports that way. Um, but it's a great kind of starter European cruise, uh, and it's an amazing way to see history. Um, and I mean, it's, it's literally everywhere. You can't miss it. Um, and so it's a very immersive kind of experience. Northern Europe, um, we're, we're talking about, say, um, around the UK, which might include uh, Scotland, Dublin, stop in Southampton, which will get you up to London, that kind of thing. And of course, there's um, sort of the Nordic uh, areas as well. So you've got Norway, which is a brilliant place to cruise to, and it's exceptionally expensive. So cruising is a terrific way to see Norway. You can go and enjoy the ports and the beauty. And then you go back on your ship and you eat a meal that is included in your cruise instead of spending $16 on a beer and $30 on a hamburger. Wow. Yeah, it is. It is pricey, but it is a gorgeous country. Um, additionally, uh, you've got you mentioned the Baltic Sea. Um, we're really talking about Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, but also you're, you might have some Scandinavia there and um, probably some Russia as well. So uh, real far northern Europe can be a little bit colder, but it's, again, beautiful and a totally different experience. And then you mentioned the Canaries as well, which is sort of um, a, a go-to for British travelers. And so if you pick that itinerary, chances are you're probably going to be traveling with some Brits as well, um, but beautiful coastal cruising. Nice. Uh, you mentioned Russia, and that uh, bell went off in my head because I remember Russia is one of those countries where there's visa requirements. So it's not like you know uh, Jamaica where you can just get off the ship and walk on and you're all right. set. Um, I know that with Royal Caribbean, if you book an excursion through Royal, they arrange the uh, visa through them, although you do have the option of doing it on your own, but there's a lot of considerations in there. Is Russia the only country you really need to pay attention to in terms of visas, or are there other European countries that I'm not thinking of? Um, for the most part, uh, that's really the one that springs to mind for me. Um, and yeah. you make a, a good point. We always advise passengers to work with the cruise ship to for those visa requirements. Um, and often, cruise lines will sort of send you to a third party uh, visa operator. It might be a hair more expensive than doing it on your own, but you also have the assurance that they're going to do it right. Uh, and so it's it. I, I always tell people if they ask, hey, <laughs> go ahead, book <laughs> with that third party, make sure it works along with what the cruise line is is um, requiring. So, and they um, these big cruise lines really handle that visa situation really well. Good. We're talking with uh, Colleen McDaniel, the senior executive editor at Cruise Critic, all about cruising to Europe here. And of course, you know, Colleen's written a lot of, and all of her colleagues, in fact, at Cruise Critic have run some wonderful posts all over cruisecritic.com about uh, cruising to Europe. We'll certainly post a link in our show notes to some of those great resources for you to check it out. Um, you know, you mentioned, obviously, visas and touring. How do you handicap the idea of should people book excursions in general, whether we're talking about Rome or Southampton or wherever? Uh, through the cruise line, on your own, mix of both. What's kind of your take on that, Colleen? So, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say personally, I, I like to do a little mix of both. 
Um, one of the things to be aware of if you're cruising Europe, and especially in the Mediterranean, um, I mentioned uh, Civitavecchia. Uh, that is the port stop for Rome, but it's almost an hour. It's about an hour and a half from Rome. So to get there, um, it might make sense to do, you know, a, a Rome excursion through the cruise line. Otherwise, you might be relying on the train schedule. Um, hmm. You might be relying on a expensive taxi, that kind of thing. And cruise lines tend to offer excursions like, you know, they, they basically put you on a bus, they take you to the city and they give you a meeting point nine hours later. Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit of an assurance there. The same with Livorno, which serves as the port for Florence. Again, not really close. And if you're concerned about not making it back to the ship, Using a ship excursion makes a lot of sense, right? For other yeah. ones, though, you can really um, you can get off the ship and walk around. That's not the case, though. I, and, and I should back up. In the Caribbean, um, you know, often you dock, you can get off the ship, walk around, do some shopping, grab a cab, um, you know, head up, do some sightseeing, visit a beach. In a number of ports uh, in the Mediterranean they don't actually let you walk around the port. So you need to get on transportation as soon as you get off the ship. So you can get out of the port. In, in some cases, it's a shuttle bus that the cruise line might provide. In other cases, it might be a shuttle that the port provides, which usually comes with a fee. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, it's, in some ports, you just can't get off and walk around. In others, you really can, especially along like France and, and Spain. You have the opportunity opportunity to sort of get off and really explore that way. And I love doing that on your own. Um, the other great thing about Europe is biking is something that is very common. And it's a great way to explore some cities. So you can do a tour on your own, um, or, you know, join a tour group um, separate from the cruise line, where you're exploring the city on two wheels. Wow, that's a cool idea. Uh, you know, and certainly uh, some good opportunities there. And we're talking about excursions. How about uh, pricing? Uh, and I often heard that Alaska is very expensive for excursions, and also Europe can be. You mentioned the the sixteen dollar beer in Norway, and already I'm like, oh boy, I think my kids really don't mind just seeing you know the uh, the local McDonald's and calling it a day. Um, what would be how would you how do you plan around that in terms of pricing? And also maybe going back to what we just talked about you know, cruise line versus on your own, is there going to be much of a discrepancy there? Uh, so it, it, as with pretty much cruising anywhere else, um, on your own is probably going to be a cheaper option. It's just what you're missing is sort of that insurance that, hey, I'm going to make it back to the cruise ship. And if I don't, the cruise line is going to wait for me, right? You book on your own, you're on your own. Um, that said, pricing of excursions, you're absolutely right. More expensive in Europe than uh, probably in uh, the Caribbean, although I would say a little bit cheaper <laughs> than what you'll pay in Alaska, um, in part just because there's a lot of transportation involved. You know, I, I mentioned a couple of places where y you take a fairly long bus ride, train ride, whatnot to get to that destination. So that's part of the reason. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's a premium trip. And so they're going to charge a premium for it. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes total sense. I mean, how do you handle in ports? That are the Mediterranean. You mentioned there's a lot of historical places there. Rome alone. I mean, I you could spend a week in Rome easily. <laughs> yeah. How do you? How do you? Uh, how, what's the best strategy for tackling these amazing places that have just so much to to see? You know, this is your first time there. Maybe you'll come back. You hope you're going to come back. But right. you also got to plan against. Perhaps this is your only time there. What would be your <laughs> your advice for this kind of a for a situation? Yeah. So one. Um, don't plan to do back-to-back -back days where it's, you know, Rome in a day, for example. Cruise lines offer excursions where basically they're like, here are the 10 places we're going to take you to in Rome. You spend a full day running around putting on, you know, 12 miles on your feet. Um, the next day, don't do the Florence uh, highlights again where you're doing exactly the same thing because you're going to burn out really fast. So start by picking the things you absolutely must see. If you if you say, hey, you know what? Rome is such a big city. I want to do everything. I want to see Trevi Fountains. I want to I want to go to the Colosseum. Do those things. But then cut yourself a break the next day because if you keep going at that pace, <laughs> you're, you're never going to make it. Um, also, I love a lot of cruise lines offer this um, The you can do Florence and Pisa in the same day. Um, and it's a great tour if you're pretty convinced you're not going to get back to Europe and it's your one and only shot. But they're not cities that are 
particularly close to one another. So you're going to spend a solid half of your day on a bus. Wow. Yeah. So just be aware that there's a lot of bus time. Um, The other thing I, I always recommend, and not everybody knows they can do this, but every cruise line has a shore excursion desk. Go down and really talk to the people who work there and say, what are the must-see things? What do I need to do? Nobody knows the ports as well as the crew on a cruise ship and the people who work there. Um, And they can really tell you what's worth it and what's not. Is it worth it to go to Pisa? Eh, I don't know. Um, But they can give you that recommendation. That makes a lot of sense. That's a really good tip there. And I know know that – there's so much to consider. There's a total amount of FOMO going on where you're just constantly like, I'm just going to miss out on everything. And, yep. you know, it's just you're worried you're making the wrong decision. But, you know, it's like you said, you know, there's you're still seeing some really cool things in port. So I think that's uh, a really good way to look at it. And certainly getting advice from the crew is, is a great yeah. strategy. And I, I'd um, be remiss if I didn't say go go to Cruise Critic, read about the ports you're visiting, spend some time on the message boards and talk to other people who've been there and done that. Um, mm. And they will help you eliminate that FOMO. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What's your favorite? Give me your top three European ports to visit. I mean, you've been there, done that. So obviously this is a little personal, but it's OK. I like subjective <laughs> answers. What are your top uh, okay. three favorites? So I, you know, I, I, I love a, a I love Europe. It's a terrific place to visit. Um, I think uh, when it comes to the Mediterranean, um, you know, lately I've really enjoyed Montenegro and a lot of cruise line stop in uh, Kator, which is a gorgeous, um, it's a gorgeous sail and you're sailing in, in this beautiful fjord with mountains up on either side of you. I like to be a little more active on my cruises. So I like that there's a hike that I can get to right from the ship. Um, and it's just a beautiful and charming town. I, I really enjoy visiting there. So that's one of my favorites. Um, you know, I just visited uh, Cassis, uh in France um, for the first time. And I really had a great time doing that as well. Um, and that is a port stop off of, uh, forgive me, it, um, Marseille. Uh, yes. So when your ship stops in Marseille, you can you can take a tour to Cassis, which is just this cute little um, fishing town uh, on the coast, of course, um, with great seafood, um, beautiful beaches, very European beaches, you know, stony and and um, uh, cool waters. It's just it was a neat little town that I enjoyed spending some time in. Um, gosh, it's hard to pick. I, I, I enjoy them all. Um, but I would say that uh, Bergen in, in Norway is another one of those gorgeous, uh, gorgeous ports. Um, not really warm weather, rains a lot, but I happened to um, catch sunshine the last time I was there. And it just, you know, it, the colors of, of that beautiful region are, are amazing. Deep greens and bright red houses and um, again, fishing, uh, it, it's a, it's a beautiful port and the people are super friendly. That's great to hear. Awesome. I like that. Um, when we're talking about also Europe, how about weather? How do you, I mean, do, uh, do they have like, is there an equivalent to like quote unquote hurricane season? I mean, are there times of the year that it's better or worse? I know you mentioned it typically rains in Norway, but I think that's kind of just a year round kind of phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, um, right. <laughs> but how do you handicap, uh, weather? Is there something that, that new cruisers should know, um, about, you know, planning a time, one time of year versus another in Europe? Yeah. So again, and and I go back to the Mediterranean just because I think that's the spot that most people start with. Um, sure. But also a favorite. Uh, it is blazing hot in the summer in the Mediterranean. Um, it is, uh, you know, great to wear um, comfortable clothes, but you need to be aware that. Um, there are a lot of churches and that kind of thing. And requirements often are for shoulders to be covered, for um, legs to be covered to the knees, that kind of thing. So um, wearing layers is super important and keeping in mind that if you want to see some of these famous sites, you have to dress in a way that is both comfortable to you, but also is considerate of the requirements of churches and that sort of thing. So um, blazing hot in the summer. It's really beautiful in the shoulder season where it's much cooler and more temperate. Um, a lot of cruise lines really start in Europe uh, in uh, April, May time period and finish up in October, November. A few cruise lines actually have extended that shoulder season and do some um, some wintertime cruising to the Mediterranean, which is a great time to see it um, because there aren't the crowds are much thinner, uh, but it is cooler. It's not snowy upstate new york cold but it is it it's cooler um and 
but it's a beautiful time to see uh, the Mediterranean. You just need to pack a little bit thicker clothing. <laughs> sure. No, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I'm just uh, I've I've I'm not the kind of person who enjoys sweating to death uh, necessarily, but it's nice to know that there are some times of the year in which you can enjoy the med and uh, not be you know just. Uh, um, just sweating up a storm <laughs> as soon as you get off the ship. But. Yeah, if you go in the summer, you're going to sweat up a storm, bring lots of water. <laughs> Some people actually bring the umbrellas to, to keep the, that sun off of them. Sure. Now that makes sense. How about um, we talked about the a lot of the shore excursion stuff. How about the ship? How important is the ship in Europe if you're considering they're so port intensive? You know, you're really only on board then for breakfast and maybe dinner at some in some cases really um how much emphasis maybe do you put on the ship that you're going on in terms of you know uh, the amount of onboard amenities or especially red dining and all the things that are available on board the ship how how critical or or how important should you weight those kind of considerations yeah it's funny you mentioned this because i was just talking to a group i was traveling with about this very topic um you are spending so much time in port i i truly think that the ship is less important um, because you, you're right, you don't spend as much time on it. What most cruise lines do very well is they have you in port for a really long time, um, which is great because you can you can grab that lunch that you wanna you wanna have in town. Um, by the time you get back to the ship, you're beat. You'll probably grab dinner, maybe take in a show or or you know a, a, an act of some kind, but it gets quiet at night. Um, you know, people go to bed early because they want to get up and, and do it all over again the next day. So um, there are fewer sea days. And and it's just, I, I think that ship is, is less important um, than the destination. Interesting. What do you think is the... Um... What do you think is the biggest surprise to new cruisers to Europe? What do you think is you think just doesn't they don't anticipate the most and they're kind of maybe surprised by shocked by I don't know how you want to uh, paint it, but what do you think uh, someone who's new to Europe would really be uh, the most surprised by uh, going there for the first time? Yeah, um, hmm, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it, it it is a different cruise experience, and I think that's. Um, it's worth noting. I mean, people, especially if they've done a lot of uh, cruising in the Caribbean, um, they, they've got a great idea of what it is. But the atmosphere is definitely different for a European cruise. Um, I don't want to say it's more subdued because it's not. It's not. There's still, you know, fun is still <laughs> key and, and great food and, and excellent entertainment. Those are all important and they're still a part of it. But um, it is very much about the destination. And so, um, you know, you get on board at night and you're sitting at dinner and talking to people about all the amazing things you said, you saw, um, and, and it, it carries you. And then you're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to bed. <laughs> Yawn. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, but it is a different experience. It's, um, but I, I, I truly believe cruising is a great way to see, um, Europe, at least get that taster. So you can say, gosh, when, when I win the lottery and come back and spend my year in Europe, I want to make sure I spend all this time in these different support reports. There you go. This is great information. I guess I got a couple more questions for you, Colleen, because I know that uh, I know our readers are, and listeners are really enjoying the, uh, the, the good insight into Europe. Uh, how about money currency? Uh, you know, in the Caribbean, you just bring dollars with you. Uh, everyone takes them. How is the, is it the same in Europe? Is it more of a preference for euros? How would you kind of handicap that? Yeah. So, um, uh, unlike the Caribbean, you want to have euros when you go to Europe. Um, credit cards work, uh, but be aware of the fact that um, a lot of uh, credit cards come with a transaction fee. So mm-hmm. look for a credit card that does not have a foreign transaction fee. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up paying a little bit extra on every purchase you make. Also be aware of something called the VAT, excuse me, the VAT, which is a tax that you are going to pay on everything you buy in Europe, every bit of money you spend. And that applies to onboard purchases as well. So um, there's a there's a bit more expense that you just you need to know is built in. And it's not an insignificant amount. It's I, I forgive me. I don't know the exact rate, but we're talking 20 percent. It's not just yeah. 
you know, it's closer to 20 than to five. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you have a preference where you get your your euros before the trip? Do you get them in the airport, bank? Um, Uh, So I'm one of those that I go to um, the first ATM I see when I I land and and I use that. Um, I I think it's the easiest way to get it. I have a credit card that, or excuse me, an ATM card that um, doesn't charge me a a ton of fees for for getting euros in, in Europe. So for me, that's the best way to do it. Um, I that try to get as sense. much as I'm going to need for my trip, of course, because who wants to go back and um, and keep getting <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. money? Uh, but, but also, you know what? Cruise ships have ATMs as well. Uh, but as you know, they're going to charge you a, a fee for that. Sounds good. What about um, – I don't know how – I mean I, I can speak for myself. I'm a huge geek. So uh, <laughs> when you're in port, uh, how about cell phones? Have, what's, your, what's your experience like? Do you use your phone at all in terms of you know roaming data or do you get a SIM card? What's the – I don't know if you have any insight into the, into that approach, but I, I know that I personally find it kind of intriguing to hear about what how you handle it. Sure. Um, so personally speaking, um, I have T-Mobile, which I think has a really excellent international plan, um, oh. and and so I use my phone a lot in port um, with the particular plan I have, um, and it's it's a fairly standard. This isn't anything special just because I travel a lot. Um, yeah. I get, you know, um, data. Uh, it, now they throttle it down to 2G, but I get data um, without paying extra. Um, oh. I get free texting, and uh, if I need to make calls, and occasionally I do, it's 20 cents a minute. Um, so it's it's a standard plan. So anyone who has T-Mobile, you're, um, that, that's what you can expect when you're in Europe. Um, less familiar with others, but um, I do know that uh, most um, mobile companies offer some sort of international plan. I recommend a package. Um, that way you know exactly what you're spending up front. Um, it makes a lot of sense to do that way. It's just like <laughs> being in the Caribbean, though. As soon as I, as soon as you get out to sea, I, I, I put it on airplane mode. I don't touch it again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you don't want those surprise charges, right? I think we've all had some kind of experience with that, where you're like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> what did I just pack up?" <laughs> Absolutely. This is. Terrific information, uh, Colleen. Thank you so much for joining us here and talking about it. I know that I got a lot of good tidbits, and at least I feel like I have a good jumping-off point for at least being able to consider possibly looking into potentially we're, we're gonna booking get you there, acres. Matt. We're going to yeah. get you there. <laughs> I, was, I was really hoping by this point in you know 2018, we, we would have like transporters like in Star Trek. I, I guess that's not going to happen, but <laughs> I would like to make that longer. happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, this is really good information. Thank you so much for joining us here, uh, Colleen. Like I said, in our show notes at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com, I will post some links to some great resources at Cruise Critic that you can uh, check out that Colleen and her colleagues there have written, which is really, really helpful for helping plan really any cruise, not just European. So thank you for joining me here. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Matt. It's always a pleasure. It's time once again to answer your listener emails. This is the part of the Royal Korean Blog podcast where we dive into the Royal Korean Blog inbox and answer the emails that you've sent us. And, of course, if you want to send me your emails to be answered right here on the podcast, well, the best way to do that is by emailing Matt, M-A-T-T, at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com, Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Our first email this week comes to us from Chris Hodnett, who writes, Matt, hope you're doing well, my friend. Aaron and I are taking our newborn baby on his first cruise this September with a back-to-back sailing on Mariner of the Seas. We'll have two days of Coco Cay and want to keep our son Lincoln out of the direct sun as much as possible. We have a small tent, which we can fit in our carry-on, and I was wondering if there are any restrictions on having tents on the beaches at Coco Cay. Chris, great email. Thanks for uh, sending it in. Uh, no, there are no restrictions at all with, with with that. I think when I remember when one of my kids was of that age, we packed one of those like little mini baby tents. These are little things that, like Chris says, they kind of like fold up and then boop, they pop open, and it provides essentially a shady spot because again, the kids when they're this young, they really are they're not mobile yet. They're just more of a rolling kind of thing. Anyway, it provides a shady spot on the beach in a situation where Chris isn't going for you know a bungalow or something like that. That's a, certainly a great option. I would recommend, though, Chris, as a, as a parent and as someone who's put his money where his mouth is, I would say if it's in the budget, it may not be in the budget for you, Chris, but if it is, uh, strongly consider a beach bungalow or even a cabana. When you got those young kids, having not just the privacy but a shaded area out of the sand is huge. Like having the, the bungalows and the cabanas both have these, like, benches. They're not just, like, hardwood. It's cushions. But, you know, kind of this couch kind of place to sit on. 
It's great for napping. It's even better when the child falls asleep on one of the parents, and then the parent wants to take a nap on top of that. You know what I mean? It's like, well, when in Rome, why not? That works out really, really well. So consider that as an option. I don't think the bungalows are quite that expensive on Coco Cay. I've used them before. I really like them a lot. Just another option for you to consider. Maybe you already bought the the little uh, tents, and you know it is what it is, and that's okay too. But the good news is you can absolutely bring the tent on board. You shouldn't have any issues with that whatsoever. So thank you, Chris. Next, we have an email from Scott from Pennsylvania, where it's Matt. First, let me say, I don't know whether to thank you or curse you. I found your blog and podcast early after booking a honeymoon cruise in June on Alert of the Seas. I've been binge listening ever since, and while I absolutely love the podcast, it's a minor form of torture, as now I can't wait until stepping foot on this cruise to the Eastern Caribbean. My fiancé and I did one cruise together a few years ago on Liberty of the Seas, and I've done two others on Enchantment of the Seas. One of the cruises on Enchantment was a wedding for my brother, where we had 65 people in our group. It was amazing to have that many people to cruise with, and we seemed to draw a crowd wherever we went, as we were always having a blast. It was awesome to meet so many people during that cruise that were not that were not even in our group. I was wondering if you, or maybe one of your listeners, had suggestions on some of the best ways to meet people, as my fiance and I would love to have a mix of personal time and time to mix it up with others in similar positions. I know dinner is one of those ways, but we will likely do our own table in the main dining room as we love to share a meal together. We're in our early 30s, so we will certainly be checking out all the spots as often as we can, but wanted to see if you had any of the suggestions. I think you may have mentioned a a honeymooners meet and greet type event. I barely even scratched the surface of your podcast, so we have covered this before, but any help is greatly appreciated. Thank you for what you do on the podcast and blog. Your passion for cruising, and particularly rural Caribbean, is incredibly obvious in all you do. Scott, thank you for the email. Thank you for the high compliments, sir. So let's talk about how to meet people on board. And you know what? I love this, Scott. This is one of the ways that uh, – one of the things I've enjoyed about cruising more recently is, you know, after a number of cruises, is that aspect of meeting people and making friends on board. It is amazing uh, when you get to randomly run across somebody and then you're hanging out with them, you know, on, on future cruises and you kind of almost start making plans with them. It's a really cool thing. It's part of why I really love – uh, the Royal Caribbean blog group cruises because you get to know a lot of people on board the ship and it's it's kind of a built-in way there. But if you want to meet people on board, here's some great strategies. Number one, get involved. Look at the cruise compass. Go to a lot of the events. There are some events where you're going to see a lot of people on at these and quite honestly, if you can participate in them, it's a, one of the best ways to meet people. Trivia is great for this because trivia is a very easy event to go to. You don't even have to be good at it. It's just a matter of showing up and you have to form teams. And if you're it's just you and your wife, Scott, well, the good news is you're probably going to have to need to mix up with other people in order to form a team because you can go up to like uh, five people or so. And that means, you know, walking up to people and say, hey, do you mind if I join your group? Great way to meet some friends there. Number two, uh, hang out where other people are. Bars, great place. The Sky Bar during the, like by the pool is one of the best places to go during the daytime, especially on sea days. Schooner Bar. I mean, it's... It, a lot of the bar experiences, the lounges, are about talking to other people. It's, there are a lot of friendly folks on board, and it's a great way to strike up a conversation there. Uh, certainly, the other way you can do it, if you really want to start making friends, is to uh, not only participate in events, but be part of the events. There's a couple of different events, like the Sexiest Man competition, the Belly Flop competition, the Quest, uh, events like that in which they need people to be to play key roles. You're essentially going to become a celebrity on board the ship in the sense of, oh, look, honey, it's that guy who had a terrible belly flop or told that awful, that most really embarrassing story. Like, inevitably, you're sitting at a bar and someone's going to walk up to you and that's the conversation starter. And that's all you really need to get it going, quite honestly. Um, that's that's one of the great ways. Also, near guest services, there's usually a podium with ad hoc events being posted there from fellow cruisers like people who enjoy playing bridge as an example may want to get together and do something like that that's a good opportunity to see some of the events as well not too many listed there but you never know uh but again the cruise compass is really go to the events the more events you go to you're gonna see people there and i feel like that's probably one of the best ways to really get a sense of other people that you're going to maybe uh you know hit it off with and become total BFFs going forward. I think it's one of the best ways to meet your fellow passengers. So hopefully that answers your question there, Scott. Our next email is from uh, Javier Alvarez, who writes, Matt, I love, love, love your blog. You have a great voice for blogging. I am hooked on cruises, and your blog is so informative. My question is, if I prepay your gratuities, but I also tip the room steward an additional $5 per day, plus 20, 30 bucks at the end of the cruise, I'd like to know your opinion. Is that not enough, too much, or is it just right? Thanks for your input, and all you do with the public, uh, with your blog, you're awesome, dude. Wow, Javier, thank you for the kind comments as well. Uh, 
In terms of tipping, gratuity, I think, is a very personal decision. And I don't think what you're doing, you, what you described there, is wrong. I'll be honest, it's more than I pay, to be perfectly uh, clear. I, I've certainly tipped above me. I do the automatic gratuities. That's my baseline. I do that because it's easier to prepay it and break up the total cost of the cruise. I also do that uh, because in, I think in most cases, it covers what I would consider to be you know, the expected amount of service I receive. Certainly, if I receive service above and beyond that from my room steward, from my dining room attendant, I tip above that. And we know that. It's one of those things that you kind of know in your gut. Like, yeah, you know what? That guy or that gal really deserves something more. And it's one of those feelings you know, like, right in your heart. Like, you're like that, that, they really deserve something. They did something that deserves that, and they've really treated us better than we even have had maybe on previous cruises, which is saying something. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it depends. It depends on the person. It depends on you and what you, your expectations are and what you're looking to get out of them. I mean, some people, it's funny, I know some folks who are, they know it themselves, they're a real pain in the butt. <laughs> they make a lot of requests, they demand, they expect a lot of really good service, and as a result, you know, they also recognize they are kind of a pain in the butt, so they tip on top of that because if they, you know, if the person is doing their job and really going about to meet those expectations, you know, that person at least recognizes that. So, I like I said, I think it really depends on what you're looking to do and what you're looking, what you know, what you feel comfortable with. There is nothing wrong with paying just the the standard automatic gratuity, and you you should not feel bad about that. That's what I also want to make sure it's very very clear that you don't have to go above and beyond. It's not a requirement. It's not the starting point. It is certainly a very adequate amount of money to be tipping somebody. Uh, this is, and when I talk about the automatic gratuities, this is the gratuities that Royal Caribbean automatically takes out of your CPAS account every day of your cruise, or you prepay before your cruise in order to just you know alleviate that. And, and I like it just because you get to uh, break it apart, right? You pay that off maybe a couple months before your cruise. That way you don't have that big bill at the end of the cruise. That's all. But... Uh, I think, Javier, what you're doing is great. If, if that's what you think is is definitely representative of your gratitude towards your your, fel- your stateroom attendant or whomever, I don't think you're making a mistake there at all. It's really just about what you think is fair. That's what it really boils down to. So, all right, let's talk. We actually have a voicemail, believe it or not. Did you guys know we have a voicemail line? Yeah, you can call us up and and leave a voicemail. We, are, we can play it right over here. So if you want to do so, anytime you want. Uh, the phone number is 408-6-ROYAL-6. 408-676-9256. You just, I don't want to answer. Don't, I promise. It's not a, It's not my cell phone. It's just a voicemail line. Call up. Say who you are and what you want to talk about. And our voicemail this week, I believe, comes to us from Jen. So let's go right to Jen now. Hey, Matt. My name is Jen Budd. I'm calling from beautiful Jacksonville, Florida. Um, this is my first time calling in. i long-time listener, first-time caller. I just wanted to make a comment about the deposits. I've been listening to your podcast now for a couple of months, getting ready for our first Royal Caribbean cruise in um, Uh June on Symphony of the Seas. And so listening to you talk about going on the next Royal Caribbean cruise and how you should make a deposit, it's only a couple hundred dollars. You know, so I said, okay, you know what, maybe we should do that. And then if we change our mind, it's no big deal. We can always just take the money back. Well, it turns out for a family of four, the deposit is $1,000 because it's $250 per guest. So I'm not sure if you being a repeat Royal customer um, passenger gives you um, a lesser deposit amount, but I just want to let you know for us regular folks, it's about $250 per person. And I did double check that with Royal Caribbean and I did um, get a quote from your preferred travel agency, MEI Travel, and then I also quoted it with my preferred travel agency, which is Costco. So I just wanted to let you know that um, the deposit might be a little bit more of a sticker shock than some people were expecting. All right. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Jen, thanks for the email, and I think you bring up a really good point, which is that, look, the deposits aren't 10 bucks. You're right. There is, and for a family of four, like you said, 250 That's pretty much the going rate. I know that if you go back, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago, Royal Caribbean used to offer much more reduced deposits, especially if you had booked on board the ship. That's not really the case anymore. They've kind of gone away from that. And the full deposit amount is the full deposit amount, and you're absolutely right. It's still like 250 times four. You're getting to that $1,000 mark. It's not an easy chunk of change. The reason why I still think it's a good idea is because the earlier you book it, the cruise that is, and put the deposit down, yeah, it's a thousand bucks. Let's use your example, it's a thousand dollars right now. But what you're doing is you're locking in the price of that cruise. Now, let's say 
the cruise is going to cost you three or four thousand dollars hypothetically i don't know what it'll cost but right somewhere along those lines you're going to you put the thousand dollars down here june 2018 right or it's actually may 2018 i should probably look at calendar before i record this and you're you know you you put that money down now for a cruise in oh let's say summer 2019 or 2020 whatever the case may be but now you're able to break it up. So you pay off the you you take the thousand dollar hit on your next credit card bill. Not great. Sticker shock, like you said it. Absolutely true. But the advantage is you've locked in that price now. So now fast forward three months from now, four months from now, and you if you went to go book it at that point, I'd be pretty certain that the price would have gone up at to a certain point. Maybe it's a hundred dollars, maybe it's a thousand dollars, who knows? But it's gonna go up over time. But that allows you two things. Number one, you lock in that really that lower price, right? So that's good. Number two, you can make payments along the way. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at is instead of what you're trying to avoid is booking it at a point where you're paying, let's say, the three thousand dollar, four thousand dollar fare, right? You don't you're not paying it all in one foul swoop. It's not like you're getting hit with the deposit and then getting pay, hit with the final payment date, you know, maybe a month or two later or something like that. I would rather have those thousand dollars now. $500 maybe around Christmas because you get that you know Christmas bonus that comes in there. Uh, maybe you know another $500 in February because you don't have really that much bills that month, and you know another $500 another month, and basically it's a lot easier to pay off that cruise. But you're absolutely right, Jen. I mean, look, it's still at the end of the day, it's still a deposit amount that uh, you know is you know 250 per person. There's no getting around that. That's just the nature of the beast. That's what Royal Caribbean charges, and that's what it costs. The thing is, I still think that it's. The reason why I recommend making that deposit is not because you've got a thousand dollars laying around, you can just you know start putting cruise reservations down like it's a game of roulette, but more to the point that you know there's a vacation that you want to take, you feel pretty confident you're gonna do, so you can do that. Now, once you have a thousand dollars down, the good news is you pay that off. Let's say two months later, three months later, six months later, he's like, oh, you know what? That sounds not gonna work for you because someone's getting married, you gotta go to a wedding, or some new ship some other ship is of more interest to you, whatever the case may be. It's very easy then you take that thousand dollars, you call your track your preferred travel agent and they can move it around for you it's this this is money that you've already paid for it's kind of it's out there it's out of your bank account but you can then move it around a little bit as as it were and that makes it a whole lot easier as well so i think there are some benefits to it but look you're not going to get around the fact that it's 250 per person for a deposit absolutely right and jen i appreciate the email so we can talk about that topic and you know if, if you're thinking of jen i bet you others are as well so thank you for sharing that with us let's go to our next email it is from adam Right, so I'm at Adam from Dublin, Ireland. Congratulations on the incredible success of your blog and podcast. I first tuned in ahead of our honeymoon in January 2016 when we did a 10-night Southern Caribbean cruise on the Serenade. The podcast provided us with a wealth of information before stepping on board and ensured we were ahead of the game on our first cruise. Since then, we did the Mediterranean cruise last summer with Celebrity, and we definitely are hooked on cruising now. Anyway, we're expecting our first child in the next month and are already expecting uh, plenty of sleepless nights. We're hoping to get on another cruise in about a year's time. Our feeling is that for infants, toddlers, and young children, Royal Caribbean offers the most services. I know that you mentioned before about your experiences traveling with children ages 2, 3, or younger. What would you underline? Also, I think that choosing the right ship is more important than the itinerary, as we'll want good weather and a ship that ticks the right boxes. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks very much. Keep up the good work. Yeah, Adam, cruising with kids is wonderful. I've been doing it since both my kids were six months old. It is a great way to travel. And I think that when you're traveling with young children, uh, first and foremost, you want to make sure you're on a ship that has a nursery. Uh, which is pretty much all the ships in the fleet these days. There are very few that don't, but first and foremost, make sure it has a nursery. It's the best money you'll ever spend, 6 or $8 an hour you'll ever spend. I mean, it's just one of the things, one of the lessons that I often had to repeat to my wife and we relearned with both kids is that it's our vacation too, and we certainly want to spend a lot of time together. But at night, especially in the evening, we dropped our kids off in the nursery when they were of that age. And to me, it was the best value because it allowed my wife and I to have some alone time to be able to, you know, go to the bar, go to see a show, enjoy dinner without crying or whining or complaining or a combination of all three. Like having a couple hours to yourself is a really nice way to celebrate and, and spend part of your cruise. It doesn't be the whole time. I'm not advocating necessarily to put your kids in Adventure Ocean from, you know, dawn to dusk, although that thought may have crossed my mind a couple times, but definitely take advantage of the nursery it's yes it's six to eight dollars an hour it is the best six to eight dollars an hour you'll ever spend the staff there is amazing the kids love it it's it's phenomenal so definitely take advantage of that also there is something to be said about going on some of the larger newer ships in Royal Caribbean sleep because they offer more for children on board in terms of entertainment programming and whatnot 
Uh, there's no question in my mind that if you're if you got a young child, you know, going on an Oasis class ship or a Freedom class ship or a Quantum class ship is superior in terms of the overall child experience than a Radiance class ship, as an example. I love Radiance class ships. I go on it a lot, but I'm telling you from a child, pure young child standpoint, there's it's night and day difference between the two in terms of you know the what's available to them, what they can do. Uh, you know, making sure also the other thing is you want to go on a ship that has a pool that allows uh, toddlers to go in there, people, kids with diapers. Uh, not all ships have this. In fact, you want to make sure your ship has a a splash pad where children with diapers going because you cannot bring children in diapers into the main pool or even the h2o zone you know where there or the um splashway bay there's special areas on certain ships that with kids in diapers that they can only go in there it's very specific about it they're very strict about it so you want to make sure you're on on a ship that has that or at the very least on a ship that's on a very poor intensive itinerary in which you don't need to worry about the pool necessarily but i would definitely go about that we have a lot of great resources at realcreamblog.com. Adam, that I would recommend you check out. We've actually done a podcast, Cruising with Young Kids, which you may have listened to already since you sent me this email, Adam. But if you haven't, uh, Christy and I did a great review, I think, of overview of Cruising with Young Kids. You definitely want to take a listen to that one. It's a good, good po- uh, point for you to kind of uh, kind of pick up some tidbits there. I'd also recommend uh, my wife's blog, momsoftheseas.com. It's a great question and answer forum in which you can actually read other questions uh, that other parents have sent in and see the answers to that. Also, submit your own if you have a specific question. It's a great resource, momsoftheseas.com. I'll post a link to all that, the podcast and my wife's blog on our show notes at royalcaribbeanblog.com. Our last email this week comes to us from Andy, who writes, Hi, Matt. I'm a kid cruiser who absolutely loves to go on cruises. My family is going on a lure of the seas, and one of our stops is San Juan. We want to know what are some fun things to do. Andy, thank you for checking out the podcast, dude. All right, so fun things to do in San Juan. I love exploring old San Juan. So your cruise ship's going to dock in old San Juan, which is basically a it's a city built on a hill. And your cruise ship docks at the bottom of the hill. The good news is tell your parents, just get off the ship and just start walking around. There's so many cool things to see on there. I think, and you're going to love the old Spanish forts. There are two of them. You can go to both. Actually, admission to one gets you into both for that day. So don't worry if your dad's like, I'm not paying for two forts, Andy. Good news, Dad. You got you covered because admission into one gets you into both. Uh, it's really in- impressive because what's cool about it, Andy, is you can walk all over the forts and see all the cannons and uh, all the places you could hide in there. It is so cool to explore that area. You definitely want to do that. Also, there's a ton of great restaurants, museums, shopping. It's just really when it comes to Old San Juan, I just recommend walking around town. And what I love about it, the reason why I mentioned this, the fact that it's on a hill, if you ever get lost, right, in Old San Juan, no worries. All you have to start doing is walking downhill, and you will literally run into the cruise ship. It's very easy to do. I love Old San Juan, and Andy, I'll post a link in our show notes at realcreamblog.com, a link to uh, a blog post we have about things to do in Old San Juan, so you have a pretty good overview of what there is to, what what you could really expect to do there. A lot of great things there. It's it's a great city, a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy it quite a bit. So thank you, Andy, and thank you to everybody for the wonderful emails here on this week's episode. Of course, you can always send me your emails by emailing us at matt, M-A-T-T, at royalcaribbeanblog.com, matt at royalcaribbeanblog.com. So until next time, I'm Matt Hotchberg, and we'll talk again soon.